Hi again, everybody. This is Jamie Allison, and this is the Big Idea Big Moves podcast. This is the destination podcast for high performers. We talk to people from different niches, different backgrounds, and uh, try to pull out what things that they have learned through their lives and also any high performance techniques that they can translate and we can all learn from to be able to move ourselves forward. And um, we always have really high profile, cool guests. And today I can tell you that you're going to, you're in for a treat. I think you're going to hear some really cool stories, but also take a a lot away from today's podcast as well. Um, so we will jump into that in just a second. Couple of things that uh, we wanted to note, um, as uh, as we have in the last few podcasts, we just want to make sure that we're thanking all of those essential workers that are doing a little extra right now and have been for a long time now for us as well. Even though things are opening up and and there's lots of stuff happening uh, in the world right now, um, want to make sure that we extend our thank you to those people. Um, two of the things that uh, a couple of our sponsors have done to help with that as well. Well, um, is that Jazz HR, who is the applicant tracking system that uh, that has a connection to the podcast? Um, they have that platform, and they're making it available for anyone who is wanting to hire those essential workers. So, if you are part of the essential worker groups, and they need to be able to have a system to be able to help hire right now, they're opening that up for free. So, uh, if you go to um, www.bigideabigmoves.com, you'll see the information there. There's a link take you through and take a look at it, and definitely take advantage of that if you're one of those organizations. Um, the other one is Epitome HR and they are doing a series um, for people who are out of work right now. We all know that there are a lot of people in that situation um, and so they have a webinar series that they've been putting out. Um, they're free. Just take advantage of them when you can. Um, there's different ones, everything from um, having uh, so job search for introverts, for those people that maybe are, are looking at a, a bit of an edge from that standpoint um, and also um, how to ace the video interview. Um, as you can kind of see right now, a lot of what's happening when people are dispersed in different areas is if you're going to do interviews you're probably going to do them by video so this is how to prepare yourself for that and go through that there's also a podcast episode that helps you there as well so if you're looking on whatever platform you're listening to toggle through and find that one and uh, and take a listen but um, you will see the webinars that are also on that that uh, website we talked about it's www.bigideabigmoves.com so uh, so a couple of really cool things for our audience uh, as well uh, so today as I said I, I'm really Really excited to to have a discussion today with Charlie Engel. He's a world-renowned ultra marathon runner, um, and he has won a lot of the world's most punishing long-distance races. In 2007, you may have seen Matt Damon actually uh, produced and narrated the story. Uh, it was called "Running the Sahara," and it was about his journey to be the first person to run the Sahara Desert. And, and just to give you a bit of a, an idea of what that is like, um, it's my understanding is that's like having two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days, if you look at that distance. And we're talking about the desert. So we're, we're going to talk into that a little bit. Um, he's also the author of Running Man, a memoir, and that chron uh, chronicles his really extraordinary ups and downs, which we'll talk a little bit about that today, um, and his experience. And it's really a, a whole story of, of everything from pain to resilience to triumph. It, it's a fantastic book that, um, that you should pick up if you haven't as well. Charlie's been featured in Outside Magazine. He's been in Men's Journal. He's been in the um, Huffington Post. He's been on The Tonight Show. So he's been all over the place. I'm really happy to have him here. When we chatted uh, um, just uh, a few days ago, 
kind of getting ready to when he'd uh, come on here with us today. Um, he was getting prepared actually to do a 12-hour run with his son. I know a couple of days ago, and he, he took I think a bit of a rest day yesterday. But maybe we'll just start at how did how did the run go, Charlie? And uh, you know I know you were doing it for another reason as well. So. Yeah, Jamie, thank you so much for having me. Uh, the run went really well. Of course, it was, uh, as these things go, it was the hottest day of the year so far here because, you know, I always make the joke that if you plan a running event, you know, you'll get the worst weather, like no yeah, matter what. Of course. But, uh, the purpose was a friend of mine in North Carolina runs a uh, homeless shelter treatment center running program, and she does this run every year normally in person. And of course, no no thing nothing's happening in person right now or not much and so uh it was a virtual run so a lot of folks joined in uh only a handful were foolish enough to actually run all 12 hours uh, most people just ran you know a few miles and and it was great the, the best part of the day by far was that i i spent the entire 12 hours with my 25 year old son uh running and i had not actually seen him since uh, he was in the Peace Corps and posted in Senegal uh, in February and coronavirus hits and the Peace Corps sent everyone home and ended the programs and he was uh, in quarantine for a while and then staying with his mother. And so it was actually the first time I had seen him in many months. And so our, our way of having a reunion was to run for 12 hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Not the normal reunion, but hey, that's that's pretty cool, though, to be able to see him after all that amount of time. And and so much stuff is is going on right now. I know we had talked about, I mean, you know, you have have actually had an experience with COVID and, and are also, you know, ha uh, all of the things that are happening right now. I, I mean, that's that's pretty fantastic that you're uh, you're really taking an active role right now, too. Yeah. My, my wife and I both have had COVID-19 and happened in early April. And so we're mostly past it now. I'm, I'm, I think a hundred percent, she's 90%. There's still some underlying, you know, issues with just energy and stuff. So I, I encourage people often who say, I don't know anyone who has it to uh, remind them that uh, I would, I would argue there may not be anybody healthier than me. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of healthy people out there, but anyone can get this. And you know, I take great care of myself and, and uh, I can, you know, run a long ways and I, I do, I, I take care of myself and I still got it. And, you know, so just continue to be careful is what I tell people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an important message because I think a lot of people do think that it's just if you're in that high risk group, you don't have to worry. But, um, but you know, that's, that's not the case. And, and yeah, you are an example of not just running all that way. You, you take care of, you know, your, your eating habits, all of those things as well. So, yeah. um, it's well, not a look, we, we, I understand the world has to open back up. You know, we get that. But I, I just remind people that, look, there's a way, you know, take whatever precaution. You know, most people wear a seatbelt when they're in a car, right? I mean, the odds of you having an accident on any day are tiny, but you still wear your seatbelt every day. So why wouldn't you wear a mask when you go out, even if it's, you know, one in a million chance that you're going to get this, you know, why? it's just, it's crazy not to. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. Um, now, uh, going into your story a little bit, Charlie, because uh, I, I think um, you know most people do know that, that you know they think, oh, okay, this is uh, this is this kind of crazy runner who does all of these really kind of long runs. But have you have you always been you know have you been a runner since you were you know a small child? Were you always an athlete? How did how did that all start for you? Yeah, you know, and, and 
as you know, Jamie, I do a lot of speaking, and so I talk about this a lot. And, and, I, and I always tell people that, look, my, every story I ever tell, every experience I, I explain revolves around one simple idea, and that is that you know, what happens to us isn't nearly as important as what we do about it. Um, so as a kid, I was not an athlete. I had hair, I had hippie parents and hair halfway down my back. And, and, you know, and it wasn't until I was a teenager, 13 years old that I started playing any sports, but, and I sucked at everything, frankly. And so, but <laughs> knack, but I was a decent runner because it, you know, running didn't technically take skill. Like it just, you know, it just, I, I naturally was a good runner and I had some family history with running and, I had been told as a kid that I was going to be a runner because my grandfather was a famous track coach. And, um, you know, and so those things do embed, I think, as parents, you know, we, we don't always appreciate that the things that we say to our kids, you know, actually do go in there and stick there, even if they don't always, you know, seem like they're hearing it. So, you know, I ran in high school and I ran at a pretty high level and, you know, the short version of this phase of my life is that I, um, I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and I went there as a very high-achieving freshman, you know, student body president. I played all the sports. I dated a few cheerleaders. I made good grades, and I thought I was the man. And I get to Carolina, and there's 4,000 other freshmen who have the exact same resume that I do, or, you know, maybe better. And for a period, you know, I got lost and um, I, I found uh, that uh, drinking sort of took the place of the high achieving that I had. And, you know, it led me down a really difficult path, both yeah. in college and you know, really from the time I was 18 years old until I was 29, uh, I... You know, I know, I know you have a lot of business folks, uh, you know, watching this. You know, I, I was the guy, I would get a job, let's just say, like, I sold Toyotas for two years, okay? Yeah. I was the number one salesman in the United States for Toyotas, you know? So I would sell 600 cars a year. And because my view was, if I could overachieve on this side in the business world, if I could buy a house, if I could buy a car, I can't add it. Addict can't do all those things. And of course, that's totally not true. <laughs> you yeah. know, addicts are driven, are driven like people. And, and the desire to look good on one side caused a lot of bosses and my first wife and a lot of folks to sort of ignore the obvious sign of my addiction. So I basically had 12 years of repeating of achieving, screwing everything up, having to move and go somewhere else starting all over, doing it again, like over and over and over and over. And that led all the way to the point of the birth of my first son when things, you know, finally changed. Yeah. Now, and, and I think, um, you know, they changed for you, but, but you did hit some pretty low points at some point too. I, I think that's, uh, I think that's important for people to know that, you know, because they see you as a very successful person and they also probably saw you at different times even back then as being this, you know, you were talking about and people can still be perceived as very successful. And if you think of people that are maybe listening to this, there are lots of people that are CEOs and people that are high performing executives that are very good at being able to have a bit of a veneer around things. And, and, you know, but, but you had that, but you also had some pretty low points at that time too, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, my joke used to always be the boss won't fire the top salesperson. And that absolutely turned out not to be true. 
<laughs> because, you know, because eventually you get to be a pain in the ass, you know, and, and like, it, it doesn't matter how good you are, you disrupt the entire chain with everyone else. And like, it's just not sustainable. And so at 29 years old, my first son was born. And, and I actually at that point had been through treatment. I'd gone to AA meetings, I'd gone to church, I'd like you name it, I had tried it to, to quit. But in general, all of those times were about outside pressure. You know, my wife wanted me to quit. My boss wanted me to quit, you know, whatever it was. And uh, sure, I wanted to change, but I, I was still doing it for other people. And it wasn't until the birth of my son that I realized that, um, you know, two months after his birth, you know, I guess I hit the final bottom. What I hope today is still the final bottom all these years later, uh, you know, and I, I'm sitting in on the ground outside a dumpy motel watching the police search my car and there's bullet holes in the car and, um, you know, they find a cracked pipe and, you know, all I can think when I see this cop holding this pipe is like, I, you know, I wonder if there's anything left in there. Like I had no perception even of the trouble I might be in or anything else. My was just so geared towards this destructive lifestyle that I had going. And, and it wasn't until that very moment, Jamie, that I, I, I had the clearest thought that, you know, nobody's coming to save me. Like there isn't, you know, there isn't any outside uh, thing or person that's going to come save me until I was willing to save myself, you know? And, and that day I went to my first AA meeting that I really went because I wanted to make a change. I had gone to some before, but mostly just to get people off my back. And, you know, I went to this meeting for the purpose of changing. And I got up the next day and I put on my running shoes. And for three straight years, I did those two things every day without missing a day. I went to a meeting and I ran. And slowly but surely, I, you know, I started to build a life for myself. And, you know, I ran more than 30 marathons in those three years. And I, I would say because clearly I had that addictive thing under control. <laughs> and uh you know and 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 it took those years though and i think this is an important pe thing for people to hear you know i thought i was broken as an addict i thought that i was unlovable and undeserving and you know i thought that the best thing i could do was to like get rid of my addict like if i could have taken a scalpel and cut that part of me out i would have and it took those 3 years of sort of running obsessively and, and whatever to realize that the addictive nature was all the best parts of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I would argue that everyone listening to this, if you are successful in your business in any way, it's because you have a certain obsessive quality, if not addictive. Like you, people always talk about balance and sure you need, you need some balance, but to be successful, whether it's in your family, in your business, with running, there has to be a, a sort of an obsessive quality to you that, that makes you want to keep going no matter what to achieve what you want. And then you figure out sometimes that's not healthy and it doesn't, you may get what you want only to find out that it causes other problems and you have to find ways to adjust. But I guess the point is during that time, I learned that actually the best part of me is this addictive nature. And if I could take my 
addictive powers, my, my superpowers, as my mom used to say, and point them towards something positive, I could be successful. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you say that, that it is sometimes just how you direct it. And, um, and, and almost everybody I talk to has, and it may not be this exact thing, but it's that there's something that has created this moment that has allowed them to see kind of the path they're on and, and be able to shift that. And, um, you know, it's, it's that resiliency of getting there, I guess, is, is, is a big piece of it is how do you, and, and for you, I mean, you know, it was, it was hitting that real low for other people, you know, what kind, what kind of things would you say to somebody else about, you know, how do you, how do you prompt that thought process for yourself now without having to go through what you went through? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I, and I, and I do say that, first of all, there's the voice inside your head. And then there's all the other voices out there telling you what to do. <laughs> and, you know, I'm old enough now to not be particularly influenced by other people and what they tell me. And I'm not saying you can't get good advice from people, but in general, what I do and, and the way I try to be successful, and a lot of the people don't even know they're part of my lives, but I find people that I admire. And there's an old saying in, in AA, actually, that kind of is about what we call attraction rather than promotion. So what that means is I'm attracted to certain people and their behaviors and what they do and the way they've achieved their success. And so I want to emulate those people. I don't, the second they turn around and try to like 100% sell me their program, yeah. um, I, I get turned, I'm not saying there's not, there's tons of people that I would buy their program and I have bought programs and like there's, there's coaches and, you know, you, you are probably one of them that has a lot of great wisdom and advice. But what I always say is there has to be a period of time where I come to the realization that that person has value on my own. If, if everything is about that person telling me how awesome they are, I'm naturally sort of turned off by it. So what I always tell people, you know, in my view, for me only, whether it's a runner whether it's a parent, whether it's a business person, if I'm looking for guidance in a particular area of my life, I mean, with the internet now, like you can seek people out and what you see, the best analogy is a kid, right? It's the, if the parent is sitting on the sofa eating a bag of chips, telling their kid to go outside and exercise, it doesn't work. And it's the same thing in all the rest of life. Why would I emulate someone who isn't doing what they are talking about? And, and so I want to find people who are living the life that they're talking about. And I see the success. And, and then the other thing I guess I would say is each person has come up with their own definition of success, right? I mean, if success is only your bank account, which there's nothing, there's nothing, well, it's not for me, so it's not for me to say that it's, you know, but if that's what gives you true satisfaction, hey, knock yourself out. Hopefully, you're doing it in a way that is still giving back to the world and, and whatever. But I, I, I'm rambling now, but I guess the other thing that I would say, and I, I, I know this is so important to me, so many things start with service, you know, and, and if you can be of service to others in whatever way that that works for you. You will, you will then find your path to success. If everything you do is geared towards your own success, it's going to be a struggle. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I find that really interesting. And, and it actually leads me to the next question is when you were preparing to do the, the Sahara piece, I know that a lot of people were saying, you're crazy, you're never going to be able to do it. So I'm sure you were getting all of those messages from other people. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's the same for anybody else in their kind of little slice of life. But, but for you, how did, how did you decide that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be able to do it, really put myself out there because you, you really were in having people chronicle it at the same time. Um, but how, how did you get past that and, and you know, translate that? Well, first of all, you know, I always say, too, that people say, oh, I could never, you know, I could never do that. I could never run that far. And I remind people, especially in business, if you have started a business or if you have started a family, you have run across the Sahara. It's just a different <laughs> version, man, because, you know, I had this idea. And in fact, I got to give credit where credit's due. It was a freaking crazy, crazy Canadian who planted this idea in my head about running the Sahara and it was um, Ray Zahab and Ray ended up being my running partner in fact with running the Sahara. So we got the good Canadian influence and um, you know, Canadians have this reputation for being so happy and easy going. And I, and I did jokingly refer to Ray as the King of happy land for a very long time. So he's <laughs> one of my great friends, but uh, you know, but we're preparing like we, I, I, here's the thing. And I took possession of this idea early on. I started just telling people and I'd already been doing a lot of pretty wild expeditions, but nothing like this. And I just started telling people, I'm going to be the first person to run across the Sahara. I took possession of the idea and people told me I was crazy. And every single time somebody told me that, I felt my heels dig in just a little bit harder, a little bit deeper. And I'm like, all right, you know, and finally, it actually happened. I get this amazing Academy Award winning director, James Small. I get Matt Damon involved and like I've got these Academy Award winners and I finally have a project and a year later we're on the coast of Senegal me and my friend Ray and, and Kevin from Taiwan we're the three runners and we're all running together the whole time and I, I distinctly remember and, and again every, anybody who's ever started a business or a family knows this feeling I distinctly remember sitting there looking at maps everybody's all excited we're starting the next day and all i can think is i have suckered all of these people out here to the sahara desert and we are all gonna die <laughs> like <laughs> because there's no handbook you you know again just like with business you come up with the idea you make a plan you try to put the plan into motion but the if there's one simple yet uh, never ending lesson is you make a plan because you have to and success is based entirely on how you adapt to the changing circumstances because it is not going to go even remotely the way you planned it and in running for 111 days across the Sahara I kept the journal every day and only on about 10 days did my plan go the way I wrote it down and on the other hundred it either went a little wrong or completely to hell, yet somehow we did make it 4,600 miles from Senegal all the way to the Red Sea in Egypt, crossing six countries, including Libya and Mali and Niger. I mean, this amazing experience. And 
it's cliche, but cliches are, are, are true very often. One day at a time. I focused on the miles that were right in front of me every single day. I didn't worry about tomorrow's problems because I could only run the miles that were right in front of me. And again, I think that's especially during these crazy times we're in right now. So, Charlie, if, I mean, you get through that, you, it's probably extreme high for you that you've got through that process. You suddenly are getting lots of notoriety too that, you know, it's just this really high level. Um, and then, uh, so you think that's, that's actually not that long ago. And, uh, and then probably something that, you know, is, is one of those big things that a lot of people would just feel completely defeated about. Um, you, you end up having to go to jail. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what happened there and, you know, how that experience, you know, how do you, how do you come off of that when, when you know, you've, you probably felt like as successful as you've ever felt and then to have to go through something so trying again. Man, yeah. Well, it is this it is this uh, never-ending cycle I think that we all go through. My extremes, both low and high, maybe are a little more extreme than most people, <laughs> but but in a, but in a sense we kind of all go through this. And after the Sahara, yeah, I went on Jay Leno and NPR and I got a speaking agent and I was given talks all over the world. Um you know, I've gotten the chance to speak at places like NATO and the United Nations. And, you know, Matt Damon and I created a water foundation uh, after the Sahara run. And today it's called water.org. And we've raised more than $1.3 billion. And it's the largest clean water nonprofit in the world. And that all came from this crazy idea that running the Sahara would be worthwhile. And I did it as a personal challenge. All I ever wanted to do was just see if I could do it. So as you said, it brought some notoriety. And notoriety is a double-edged sword, you know. And, and it caused in my little hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina, where I was living at the time, a single IRS agent saw running the Sahara. And he decided that he wasn't so impressed. And he was going to open an investigation with no, with no reason. His reason literally was he says he says to see how a runner could afford to do these things and i i jokingly say apparently he'd never heard of matt damon because i certainly didn't pay for it um but you know long story short um i come home one day and uh from running some errands just a couple of years after the sahara in 2010 just for reference yeah. and um, six armed federal agents come out of a coffee shop in my building and handcuff me and place me under arrest and in the back of a car and they take me to jail and I, I don't know why. And, you know, in, a, in America, we're fond of saying innocence will proven guilty. But the reality is, especially with social media and other things, I was guilty the second that happened and everything went away, every sponsorship, every speaking gig, every corporate relationship. I got booted off the board of my own nonprofit. I got, and I don't, I don't blame anyone for that. That is the, the nature of the society that we live in sure. today. There was no tax fraud. There was no nothing because I pay my taxes and all the investigations proved all of that. But I became the only person in the U.S. to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005 and it was a stated income loan the same as like I mean basically if you had a pulse you could get a loan yeah. and 
you know, and I defaulted on this, this one loan because when every, it was an investment property and when everything fell apart, yeah. you know, I walked away from that. Some people might have a problem with that, but you know, I lost a hundred thousand dollars of, of down payment. I lost my good credit. Like I already took a beating over this and it wasn't my fault that, that like the world collapsed, but in the world we live in, people need someone to blame. And I sort of became a person that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, even though I was a big Obama supporter and everything, I still am. I don't actually hold him personally responsible, but you know, (laughs) it, it was, you know, I go to trial and I end up being found not guilty of providing false information, but I was guilty of mail fraud on a technicality because I signed a loan package that included false information and it didn't matter whether I put it there or not. You know, it was proven my mortgage broker put it there, but I signed it. I became responsible for it. And for that, I was sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Wow. And on valentine's day 2011 my two teenage boys dropped me off at federal prison to begin serving in beckley west virginia to begin serving a 21 month sentence and i know we don't have a lot of time i'll keep this super brief because here's the lesson in it i'll cut right to the lesson you know i was i was scared i was sad and i was really pissed off (laughs) like at the unfairness of what had happened to me And I don't think there's any time in our history, a recent history with George Floyd and everything going on right now, that this lesson holds more true. The third day I was there, I met the guy in the cell next to me who was 60 years old, African-American, and had a 25-year sentence for a tiny, a gram of crack cocaine when he had been a kid. And like... And here I am feeling sorry for myself because I got 21 months for something I didn't do. I'm surrounded by people in there, especially people of color who either if maybe they did do what they were, but they were so overcharged and oversentenced and like their whole life was taken away because of one, you know, tiny amount of drugs. Were there a few bad people in there? Of course. That's what prison is made for, not for, you know, we're the most over-incarcerated country in the world. And, and so the lesson became the same as I always learn is attraction rather than promotion. What can I do in here? How am I going to get through this? Basically, who am I going to be when I get out? And so I started to run every single day, the same as I always do. And people started coming up to me and saying, hey, can you teach me how to run? I started doing yoga. People like yelled all kinds of um, not very nice things at me. Um, a year and a half later, I had a running group of 50 people running with me every single day. And guys, you know, 25 guys doing yoga with me three days a week. And I taught addiction recovery classes. And I did, I did these things. And the day I left, this group of inmates came up and they hugged me and they thanked me. and. I was blown away because what they didn't, they thought they were telling me that I had changed their lives and I had helped them. But what they didn't realize is I didn't do it for them. I did it because the only way to get through that hard time was to be of service to others. And 
you know, by helping them, I helped myself way more than I ever could have helped them. And I found my way through that experience. I wouldn't have chosen to have it, you know, on purpose because my whole life changed, of course. But the lessons I got from it changed everything. And they still, they still color the way that I look at things today. And, and even the positive change that we're seeing today and I think there are some things happening need to change and and will change and you know and I sort of needed as a and to take one quick step back as a drug addict in my 20s I was a clean-cut white guy driving around in a decent you know Toyota 4Runner and I never got stopped by the police not one time ever yeah. you know and that's the way it is meanwhile you know and I was in some of the worst neighborhoods you could be in and, you know, and I'm grateful that I didn't get stopped in a way, but, you know, because I probably would have really been in trouble. Yeah. You know, but that that's not the people in the communities I was in weren't so lucky. And, and so anyway, I got a chance for great perspective. And once again, you know, what happens to us isn't nearly as important as what we do about it. And that lesson was learned by me again. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, your your story is amazing, Charlie. And, and I, I think the, the fact that you... Um, you have the perspective you do after all of the things that you've been through, both the, the ups and the downs. And I, I think even translating to, to what's, what's happening right now. And I, I think there is a lot of change happening and I think good change. And so, um, you know, I, I think everybody looking at a way of being able to kind of create this resiliency in there, uh, would you say, I mean, you, you talked through some of it there. Is there, um, if someone is just thinking, you know what, I, I need to kind of apply some of this to my, my life. Um, are there, are there a couple things you'd say that they could do like today, if they're, they're thinking of, you know, rethinking their life a little bit and about how to build that resiliency muscle. Are, are there a couple of kind of tangible things you could say they could do today to, to kind of push forward with that? Yeah. You know, thanks for asking. I mean, I, I, I look, I'm of course, am a big proponent in um, this idea that comfort is overrated. You know, people have a tendency to try to build their life around this concept that the, the more comfortable it is, the better it is. Yeah. I could not be more opposed to that idea. <laughs> you know, I tell people all the time, think for a second about the most formative event that's ever happened in your life that has made you who you are today. Every single person goes to hardship in their head. They go to the time where they lost a loved one or their parents got divorced or they didn't get picked for the team or I don't know, whatever it is. Like those are formative events that are based in hardship and struggle and they, they give us the strength to be who we are. Nothing good has ever come from making it easy. So to really answer your question, though, I'm a big proponent of physical activity, as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. So if you've never run a marathon, you may not think that that's attractive to you. But the, the point is that it's controllable. I run 100 miles at a time or I run 50 miles like I did two days ago, because not because I think it's going to be easy. I do it because I know it's going to be hard. And I'm going to get a chance to do something where at some point during the day, I'm going to say, what the hell was I thinking? Why did I think this was a good idea? Yeah. But, but that's the thing. If you can get past those scary moments in your business or in your family life or relationships, you're saying, oh, my God, can I keep doing this? Can I keep going? Now, look, businesses fail, relationships fail. I fail running sometimes. But the, the, the point is you've got to keep going out there and doing things that challenge you and find that that something 
you know, that is harder. And if you're just sitting in your comfortable life, you know, banking your paychecks and, and looking forward to the next vacation you're going to have four months from now, that's a, I mean, I'm not being judgmental, but that's not the existence I want. You know, I want to be challenged. You can find challenge even in the midst of your comfortable life. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I, it's interesting. I, I talked with Joe Decina a while ago and, uh, um, same kind of thing. It's that, you know, put yourself out of your comfort zone. I know you've talked to him too. And, and it's just, uh, I, I think that it's a huge piece if people kind of see what pushes them a little bit and they'll find the accomplishment totally. that much better. Right. So totally. I actually work for Spartan. So, and I've oh, known yeah. Joe, I've known I'm a, I'm a race director for them in their trail running community. And oh, so okay. I I've known Joe since the late nineties. And he's always been an absolute maniac, <laughs> crazy out there. Nobody can stop you from doing anything. You want to go do it, go do it. Just shut the hell up, get busy and go do it. And if you're not challenging yourself, you are wasting your very, very limited time on this planet. We, uh, we don't really have any more time, Charlie, but I know we could keep talking and I'm hoping I can get you on again sometime because, uh, I, I just find your, your stuff so interesting. Um, if people are looking into kind of your, your background, I mean, your, your book obviously is out there running man. Um, and, uh, and yeah. the movie about you as well, which, which is there, are, are there any other things that you want to kind of talk about? I know that you've, you were, you had mentioned your, uh, your own kind of foundation, anything that you want to kind of promote that way? You know what? I'll keep it super simple for us today. Anybody wants to know more just go go to charlieingle.com. You can put it in your show notes and like all my social media handles are there. You can buy the book directly from me if you want to, and I'll sign it and send it to you, or you can buy it from Amazon, whatever. Uh, the audio book, interestingly, has sold like three times more than the print copy because I think people are really getting into audio yep. these days, especially runners and, and yep. athletes. So, uh, but anything you want to know, I write a blog regularly. I'm, you know, I try to keep it real, man. That's all I can say is that I, I, I'm, I believe strongly that, you know, uh, there's an old thing that says you're only as sick as your secret. And I sort of dump all my stuff out there and let, you know, remind people that life is about sharing the struggle. If everything you do, you make it easy and there's no struggle, that's not real. Because the most successful people I know are the people who have struggled the hardest. And, and that's what it's all about. So, charlieingle.com is the simplest way to do it and i'll come back on anytime jamie so uh, cool. i've got a big project i'm doing called the 5.8 global adventure series and people can read about that uh on the website cool all right and we will put it in the show notes so anybody listening that uh, you can take a look there and uh, we'll have any ways to, to kind of contact again thank you very much charlie and um to everybody listening if you haven't hit subscribe on the podcast do that now to make sure that anytime we have uh, guests uh, uh like charlie in it and uh, when we have charlie back again you'll be the first to know you'll be able to see it and uh, um, we have some some great guests coming up so again thanks charlie and we'll uh, see everybody again on big idea big moves Jamie, great job. Thank you.